This is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 21. This is how we should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart? And then each one will receive his condemnation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, and that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To present to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child, in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. As I teach them everywhere in every church, some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Well, I guess he read what we're going to go over, so I guess we could all go home now. Um, That was a mouthful. Thank you so much, Everett, for that. Um, If for some reason you did not hear where we're going to be today, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, if we have not met, my name is Alan. I am one of the, the teachers and writers here at Storehouse. Um, if for some reason, uh, uh, you know, we're going to have the, the 
Excuse me, we're going to have the chapters and everything, all the citations on there. I know it was a, it was a mouthful, but if you haven't um, done so already and turned there, chapter 4, um, if this is your first time here at Storehouse, thank you so much for being here with us today. It is an honor and privilege to be able to serve you in this way. Before we leave, though, do us a favor and fill out a Connect card. Those Connect cards could be found on the pews there. They look like index cards. Uh, we would really love to take you out to lunch, dinner, breakfast, or perhaps you have questions about our church or maybe even have prayer requests. We would really love to help you uh, with all of that. So by all means, please fill one out and drop them off in the Connect desk in the foyer. And Hopefully that gave you enough time to get you to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, but I'd like to start off uh, by reading a quote that I read this past week that kind of pertains to what we're going to be talking about. And this quote is by Charles Spurgeon, and he said this. Uh, it should be up there. Um, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Uh, in the Bible, the word world is used to mean different things. On one hand, it can mean that the world, as in the whole world is watching, mankind, individuals. It could also mean world by planets, the actual earth. But here, Spurgeon is using the word world to mean the humanistic system that is in opposition against God, that is at odds with God. It is the same word that, that John used in 1 John 2 saying, do not uh, love the world or, or anything in the world. He's not saying do not love people or do not love the planet, but he's saying do not love this humanistic system that is, that is at odds with God. And Charles Spurgeon, if you don't know, was a, was a pastor in the late 1800s. And so if that was true of the church then, it certainly is the truth now, 200 years later. But there's an undeniable reality that as the years go by, the church... It seemed to be getting consumed by the world, by this humanistic system. As a matter of fact, I have some uh, few notable findings here uh, in a survey of 1,456 Christians, practicing Christians. Out of those 1,456, 61 agree with ideas rooted in new spirituality. And if you don't know what that is, they would agree with, with statements like, all people pray to the same God or spirit or meaning and purpose come from becoming one with all that is. 54% resonate with postmodernist views which would agree with statements like, what is morally right or wrong depends on what an individual believes. If your beliefs offend someone or hurt their feelings, they are wrong. 29% believe ideas based on secularism which would in, uh, agree with statements like, a belief must be proved by science to know it is true. A person's life is valuable only if society seems it as valuable. The world has so much influence over the church. This is a condition which the church in Corinth finds itself in. It's getting consumed by the world. And as we saw in last week in chapter 3, as Pastor Marco made mention of this, Paul briefly talks about their immaturity and how their immaturity is creating division or causing division. Well, now in chapter 4, it's almost like he's building up on the consequences of their immaturity. And he's telling them, your immaturity is affecting you in such a way that you're not only divided, but you're getting consumed by the world. You're letting yourself get consumed by the world. 
You're becoming more like the world. Your priorities are wrong, and to make it worse, you're okay with that. And so why is this going on in the church at Corinth? Well, as we'll see today, the church in Corinth is captivated more by the world than they are by Jesus. And as a result, instead of having Jesus at the center of the church, they have the world at the center of the church. And so Paul is going to remind them, and this is our main idea for today, and our main idea serves as a one-sentence summary for what we're going to be covering about, and that is that the church is to be centered around Jesus, not the influences of the world. The church is to be centered around Jesus, not the influences of the world. And so as Paul addresses them, we're going to be able to make, uh, take away three implications as to what it means for a church to be Christ-centered or, or, or centered around Jesus. He doesn't really make a list and say, well, this is what a Christ-centered church does, but based on the conversation he's going to be having with the Corinthians, we can draw some implications. So before we get started into this uh, pretty long chapter, let's go ahead and pray to start off our time. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for today. We thank you for the ability that you have given us to be here, gathered together, to be able to dive into your word, Lord. But we pray as that we're here, you help us understand you better, that you would reveal yourself to us. And at the same time, Lord, that as we dive into your word, that you would disarm us of our comebacks and the arguments that we might have, our, our, our self-pride that we may carry, Lord, and, and that you would allow us to humbly receive your word because we don't just want to be hearers of your word we want to be doers as well so in your name we pray today lord be with us as we dive into your word amen and so the first implication that we could draw from chapter four is that a christ-centered church is one that is faithful to jesus and that is well, going to be the, the idea from verses 1 to 5. And so Paul starts off in verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So once again, Paul opens up with a reminder that he already reminded them back in chapter 3. And he's telling us that they're servants of Christ. They're in a subordinate position. Um, him and Apollos are not the gods that the Corinthians wanted them to be. And, and, and so he's telling us, reminding them, servants of Christ, but then he says, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Uh, the, the, this uh, word stewards is really used of a slave master. And a slave master was a slave who was set above and over other slaves, but directed the day-to-day operations of that master on that land. And so he was almost like a manager. And uh, he was set over others yet under authority. And so Paul is reminding them, we are servants, we are stewards, we're not to be boasted about, and we'll keep it at that. We're, we're, we are stewards of the mysteries of God, God's word, God's revelation. And then he says in, in, in verse 2, moreover, it is required or demanded of stewards that they be found faithful. This word faithful is, is devoted, committed, trusted, reliable. It is somebody who could be counted on to the point to where they are trusted. They're devoted. And the thing that we have to realize and the Corinthians need to realize as well was that every Christian is a steward. The only difference is whether you are a faithful one 
or an unfaithful one. And in the case of the Corinthians, they have pretty much been faithful to everyone and everything. They've been committed to everyone and everything but Jesus. And so Paul has to subtly remind them in these verses that they are to be devoted, they are to be faithful to Christ and not committed to him or to Apollos or to Peter for that matter. They are to be faithful to Jesus because they're stewards of Jesus, not of Paul, not of Peter, not of Apollos. And so Paul is telling the Corinthians pretty much what he told them last week. Stop worrying about being fanboys and start worrying about being faithful. So the question is why? So he's going to go off on a little side tangent here, but he'll come back to that question. He goes on to say in verse 3, but with me it is a very small thing. In other words, it is very little importance that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Paul here was being critically examined unfairly, unjustly, good and bad. On one hand, you had those guys who were fanboys, who were, who were uh, I guess, in, in some way making Paul into a god. And on the other hand, you, you had those who, who were talking smack about Paul. But in any case, he, he finds it of little importance to be judged by them or by anybody. But even he says, I don't even judge myself. In other words, my own views on myself are, are irrelevant just as what people say about me. So his opinions, people's opinions are very little importance. He goes on, verse 4, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. In other words, Paul is not aware of any great matter in which he's felt God, but that doesn't mean he's innocent. And this was kind of a jab to the, the culture that was kind of consuming the, the Corinthian church and where the Greeks believed that the conscience was the final judgment. And if, if whatever you're doing, if your con conscience gives it a pass, then you're okay to do it. But Paul is kind of making a jab there and saying, oh, no, the conscience is not the ultimate judge. You're not the ultimate judge. He goes on to say, it is the Lord who judges me. So why should we be faithful to God? Why does Paul find the opinions of other people of little importance? Who is the final judge? If it's not the conscience, it is God. God is the final judge. Paul is using himself as an example to show the Corinthians that the, the church should not be slaves to the opinions of the world. At times, and you could most likely admit this, we care too much what the world thinks about us. We do. And though we are to care because we're to maintain a good testimony, a good reputation as Christians, a lot of the times what happens is that because we care so much, we end up fearing more the world than God. And what ends up happening at that point is that everything we do, everything the church does, revolves around the world and not God, not Jesus. And so Paul has a reminder for all of us, all the churches, not just the Corinthians. At the end of the day, Jesus is the one who's going to be doing the judging, so it doesn't matter. It, it is of very little importance of what, what the world thinks. What matters is our faithfulness to Jesus. And, and Paul's not using this in a, such a narcissistic way of, well, only God can judge me, like some Christians use out of context to excuse sin. But really, he's actually telling this for our comfort. And it's kind of ironic because 
I feel that when we think about a judge, we think about a a verdict, we think about a condemnation. But here, Paul goes on to say in verse 5, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. At the end of the day, we humans, us together, we can only judge appearance. We cannot judge intentions. We think we can judge intentions. We do it all the time, right? Oh, I don't like the way the person stared at me. He probably doesn't like me, right? We think we could judge intentions, but the reality here is that Jesus is the only one who's fitting to be able to make those judgments of the heart because he can see what's at the bottom of the heart. We judge appearance. Jesus judges intentions. Then he says, then... Each one will receive his commendation from God. A church who is faithful will receive a commendation from God. That is a praise from God. And that's the only thing that matters, really. While we're in this world, we'll face a lot of obstacles, a lot of conflicts. But Paul comforts us and tells us that at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is God's praise, not the world. And so what what does it mean to be faithful to Jesus? It simply means walking in his footsteps with what we have and doing everything for for his glory, not the glory of ourselves, not the glory of the world, but to the glory of God. And so as Paul closes off here in his first point or his first implication, he's, he's letting the Corinthians know, hey, we are to be faithful, number one, to Jesus, not to the world, not to your friends, not to your teachers, It is Jesus. And then quickly, almost immediately, Paul jumps into his next train of thought. There's no smooth transition here. It just goes right into it. And and the second implication that that that, that we're going to draw is that a Christ-centered church is one that is dependent on Jesus. So we saw faithful to Jesus. Now a Christ-centered church is one that is dependent on Jesus. And that is from verses 16 to 13. And he says in verse 6, I have applied all these things. To myself and Apollos, for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor against one another. Paul is using himself and Apollos as an example so that they won't be all riled up with pride to see who's best and pinning the apostles against one another when God's best. That's what he says here. Let's not go beyond what is written. Don't don't over-spiritualize us. We're just men. We're just servants. And then Paul goes on to ask three rhetorical questions, and those are questions that don't need answers because the answers are plain. He says in verse 7, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The Corinthian church as we've seen in the last chapter, is a very, very prideful church. They knew that they were rich, and they were. They're, they're, they're part of the, of the high class. As a matter of fact, it was there in, in the city of Corinth where, where uh, the first Olympics was kind of taking place, but it wasn't called the, the Olympics. It was, it was another name for, for this big event. And so there was a lot of influence within that church or within that city. And so they knew... You know, they, they were all right. They could do good. But they, 
they knew that they were a rich and prosperous church, and they were convicted of that. So Paul here is telling them and reminding them that they are no different than any other church. He says here, who sees anything different in you? Or another way to put it is, who regards you as superior? Like any other church, the only reason they have what they have is because God had allowed them to have it. So they shouldn't be boasting as if they didn't receive it, as if they worked for it so hard, when in reality, it was a gift in God. It was, it was God's grace. And so he's using, he uses these questions to, to point to the fact and tell them, hey, you guys are boasting so much, like if you worked for something, when in reality, everything you have is a gift from God. So do not, do not be dependent on this one thing, because that thing's not even yours. It is God. And we'll see in a little bit, but from here on, Paul now is going to get after them using sarcasm. This is not, uh, seeing sarcasm in the Bible is not uncommon, as we'll see in a little bit. But this is how we know that Paul loved the church, because he's getting after them using sarcasm. Even our parents have done that a lot of times, right? When we're so close to danger, our parents are like, well, if so-and-so would have jumped off the cliff, would you jump off the cliff too, right? That's sarcasm. Those are rhetorical questions. This is exactly what Paul is going to be doing. And so he says in verse 8 to kind of kick us off, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. These little words, these little phrases, all you want, rich, kings, this is a sarcasm that Paul uses to give us uh, an idea uh, of the heart of the Corinthian church. They were secure. They were in lack of nothing. They were satisfied. As long as they had money, they were fine. That, that is what they depended on. And they thought they were kings. They thought that they, they had arrived. They, they, their, their own views of themselves were up here. But Paul tells him that him and Apollos wish they were kings. So that they would reign with them. They would rule with them. But the reality is that they're not reigning with them because they're not kings. They're totally the opposite. There's a difference. There's a divide. Verse 9 says, For I think that God has exhibited his apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. The difference is that the apostles, the disciples, depended on Jesus. And as a result of the apostles depending on Jesus in this world, they became a spectacle. They became a show. That's what a spectacle is, a theater. And what is involved in being a spectacle, he's going to explain to us right now in a little bit. But to sum it up, it is suffering. It is ridicule. It is enduring hardship. Something that the Corinthians had no clue about. None. And as a matter of fact, the church in Corinth was on dangerously good terms with the world. That to the world, the world were they looked at them, they saw rock stars. And when they looked at the disciples, they didn't. So let's go ahead and read that, that, those three ver uh, four verses, uh, verses 10 to 13. He says, To the world, Corinthians, to the world, we are fools for Christ's sake. But you, oh, you are wise. 
We are weak. When people see us on the streets, they think that we're weak. Oh, but you, they see a Corinthian, and they say, oh, you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute, we in disgrace. Even to now, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. And what is our reaction to that? When, when we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we entreat. We pray for them. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. The refuse is a word that is used to describe um, the gunk that gets thrown out after somebody cleans a surface. That's who the apostles were to the world. They were just a big show. They were a bunch of fools. Not well-dressed, not well-fed, almost like slaves, but even slaves had a better life than the apostles did. They were a spectacle. So Paul, he's going to make it very clear. He's not telling them this so that they could feel sorry for them, and you shouldn't feel sorry for them either. But what he's trying to show them is that they live completely different lives because of what they depend on. On one hand, the Corinthians depended on their money, on their status, on their reputation with the world, and that's what the world is, is attracted to. That's what, that's what the world even now is attracted to. So what? They're gonna, the world is going to look at them on all-stars and, and like them because they're going to say, oh, those people are like us. But on the one hand, you had the apostles who depended on Christ, and as a result, they suffered because the world is anti-Christ. It's anti-Christian. It is in opposition with what God has said. And this is what, what Jesus said in John 15, verses 18 and 20. He said, if the world hates me, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Kind of sounds like the Corinthians. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The apostles depended on Jesus, and because of that, they suffered. And though the apostles were hated in this way, though they were made a spectacle, though they were viewed as beggars, though they were, they, uh, they were viewed as scum of the earth, like, like they said, they depended on Jesus. And a very good verse is Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. And Philippians was written by Paul in a prison. And Paul was running out of resources. He was captured. He was in a prison. And he, he had none. And so the church in Philippi, what they started to do is uh, raise funds. And somebody went to go deliver the money and so that Paul could get by day to day. And so this is what he says in, in Philippians chapter 4. Not that I am speaking of being in need. In other words, I'm not just saying this because I'm in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am be to, to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in every circumstance I have learned the secret of plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In other words, I've been at the hilltop and I've been down by the river. I've done it all. But the person who has kept me going, the person who has helped me through those times, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Jesus. 
Paul says, I'm depending on Jesus for guidance. I'm uh, depending on Jesus for strength. I'm depending on Jesus for provision. I'm depending on Jesus for prayer. I'm depending on him. And he's been able to take me through those high times, low times. didn't matter. He saw me through. Dependence means to, to rely on. And the Corinthians relied on their money. And while they had that, they were satisfied. They were content. I wonder if that still would have been the case if all of that was taken away. Probably not. The Corinthians depended on the materialistic things of the world. Reputation, money, status, all which are things that could be taken away in an instant. We know this. We're out there in the, in the, in the world. We know this. But Paul's showing us here that though at times he had much, at other times he didn't have anything, he was satisfied because he had Christ. That was his source of dependence, not the materialistic nature of the world. And so Paul says, you guys are depending too much on the things of this world that you've you just forgotten already. You, you've forgotten your purpose you have forgotten why you've been created. A Christ-centered church is one who is dependent on Jesus. And then quickly, just like that, he goes into another implication. Paul rarely has any transitions here. It's just one thing after another because it's a serious conversation. So the next thing he implies is that Christ-centered church are, are, are people who imitate Jesus. They're imitators of Christ. That is verses 14 to 21. He starts off in verse 14 by saying, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. In other words, Paul, Paul's intention is not to condemn them. It's not to curse them, but rather to, to provide guidance, provide correction where it is needed, the right direction, help them grow spiritually. And that's why he says admonish. And the word admonish here means to, to exhort, to rebuke a heart's stern word because at the end of the day Paul viewed himself as their spiritual father and he viewed them as his spiritual children and Paul has said what he said up to this point because he loves them he genuinely loves them he's not trying to be mean but just like any parent that corrects his child that's what Paul is doing here he says for Though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. A guide was, was a slave who was hired by the family and was given the responsibility of a moral guardian to the child of that family. And it's almost like Denzel Washington on Man on Fire. Right? He, he would take the child to school. He would bring him back to school. He would uh, guide him in moral matters. He would help him in, 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 in uh, moral decision making. This guy was a solid guy. Denzel Washington is a solid man. But at the end of the day, Paul's reminding them, y'all could have 1,000 guides. 2,000, 3,000. But they only have one father who is more than just anybody outside the family, who is more than somebody that can be hired, who is more than, than a moral guardian. These individuals, the guardians, could be replaced at any time. But Paul is saying here that he is their spiritual father. He was the one who presented the gospel to the Corinthians, and when they heard the gospel, they believed. 
And that's why the church is there to begin with. They only have one. And so then Paul says in the following verses, I urge you then. In other words, I encourage you. Be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. An imitator is is a person who adopts the appearance or behavior of another. That's what an imitator is. Now, Paul is not saying, well, you know what? You should live the way that, that, that we've lived, and so um, you should live a life of poverty. And if you're not doing that, you're sinning. You can't buy nice things, so start giving everything away. No, but he's not saying that at all. He's telling them that they are to imitate Paul and his passion for holy living, for, for conduct, character, not compromising the gospel. And though Paul was a sinner, just like you and me, he would even call himself the chief of sinners in some of his epistles. He was a man of integrity. That means he, he was consistent in his, in his character wherever he went, which is why he feels so confident in sending Timothy to them. After being with Timothy for a long time, he says, here, uh, you know, I'm going to send you Timothy so he can remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. So Paul was a solid guy. It doesn't mean he was, he was completely holy. No, he had his downfalls and he had his sins, but, but he was consistent. At the end of the day, Paul isn't saying imitate me because he's trying to start his own denomination because if you remember, that's the one thing he's trying to avoid. That's the whole point of the, fir- uh, of the first implication, right? We got to be faithful to Jesus. He's saying this because he was imitating Christ. And he knew that if the Corinthians imitated him, they would be imitating Christ. He tells them this and in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 later on, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He knew if you imitate me, you will be imitating Christ. The issue with the Corinthians is that they wanted to be imitators of the world so bad, so bad. They wanted to do what the world does. And what does the world do? It sins. It is anti-Jesus. It goes against everything that God has said and put in place for us to do. The, the Corinthians were, were just, all of their, their life, all, all parts of their aspects of their lives, it was just so consumed with, with ideologies, with culture. And as we'll see in later on, uh, the Corinthians caused division because of their pride. We saw that, and we'll keep on seeing that. They committed immorality because of their sensuality, whether it was in their marriage or, or they, they themselves freely. They coveted false doctrines because of their convenience. All of, the, all of these things is, is signs of the Corinthians being more concerned about the world. And as, Paul, as far as Paul knows, Corinth and the world were one and the same people. There was, there was no division there's no visual difference. And so that's why he's telling them, you know, be imitators of Jesus. Be, be an imitator of me that I, am, that, that I am an imitator of Jesus. But even now, the church wants to be like the world. It's very common here in the valley. 
Churches have adapted cultural norms. They adapt cultural practices, trends, or even change their language in a way so that they, they could be more appealing or more relevant. The church has been adopting uh, secular values, diluting or reinterpreting scripture to once more, to, to seem more relevant to the world. And those, those, those reinterpretations and those uh, dilutions are, are more closely related to worldly values than, than spiritual values. The, the church now has, has an immense growth in emphasizing prosperity, material prosperity, success, self-improvement, mirroring what our uh, world sees as what it means to be successful. The church has had political alignments and they align themselves with certain political candidates or ideologies and attempt to influence societal change through, through politics at the expense of spiritual truths. The church now looks more like, like a business and with all this marketing and branding and that would include slick advertising campaigns, social media influencers. There's just so much that the church is doing that we're called not to do. And so this is a reminder, not only for the Corinthians, it is a reminder for us. Paul wants us to be imitators of Jesus, not of the world. That The church is, is an extension of the kingdom of God. It is not an extension of the government. It is not an extension of the world. It is not an extension of the business. It is an extension of the kingdom of God. That's where the Corinthians had it wrong. He goes on to say, verses 18 to 21, someone arrogant, though I were not coming. In other words, there, there was a lot of people, as I mentioned, they were talking smack about Paul, and they were saying, man, he's not going to show up. He's going to send one of his goons. Or if he doesn't send one of his goons, he's just going to send us another petty letter. But then he says, but I will come to you soon. If the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. A power. Paul is saying, Paul is a very serious guy. He was being serious. Well, I'm going to show up. The only person that's going to stop me from showing up is the Lord. And when I show up, I'm going to see where you guys are at. Because even for, for your reputation, I could hear this, that you're, going, you're doing so good. But the kingdom of God is not just about word. It's about doing. It's about putting in action. And so Paul was a no-nonsense type of guy. Then he says, what do you wish? What do you want me to do when I see you? Shall I come to you with the rod? Should I, should I be ready to show up? And discipline you. I've already disciplined you in this letter. I'm sure uh, Timothy is going to discipline them. Uh, so you want me to give you uh, your third round of disciplining? Or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Or am I, am I going to show up and are you guys going to have been repented? Coming to Jesus. So Paul closes off this chapter by reminding them, by reminding us who we are. That is, we are people of the kingdom of God, not the people of the world. This is why the church is to be faithful to Jesus. This is why the church is to be dependent on Jesus. This is why the church should be imitators of Jesus, because we are from him who saved us. It is Jesus. 
The reason why we're called the church is because of Jesus, not, not because of the world. And the Corinthians had this all wrong, and even at now, the status of the church has it all wrong. And so, uh, a Christ-centered church is one whose faithfulness is to Jesus, is dependent on Jesus, and are imitators of Jesus. That's a Christ-centered church. So, so then what do we do? What's the game plan? Right? That's what, what you might be thinking. Well, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verses 10, 10 to 14, tells us the game plan. And in the context, before we read that, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the old sacrificial system of the, of the Old Testament and how sacrifices uh, were given to God for the forgiveness of the sins of the people who was eventually symbolic of Jesus who was to come. And so he says here, Hebrews 10, uh, uh, excuse me, Hebrews 13, 10 and 11, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of the animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins are burned outside the camp. When we talk about the sacrifices that were taken into place in the Old Testament, the, the thing that we automatically think of is blood, death, forgiveness of sins. But we hardly ever talk about the body of that animal. What happens? Do they eat it? Like, how, how do they dispose of that? And so the writer Hebrew here tells us, well, they're burned outside the camp, outside the city. And what was outside the city? Outside the city was where all the refuse was at, all the gunk, all the garbage, everything that people didn't want. That, that, that went outside the camp. Everything was unclean, especially the animals. The animal, animal that was used for sacrifice after that wasn't clean, and so therefore it needed to be taken out, out there, outside, somewhere. But it was considered unclean. It was where the garbage, gunk, and refuse was disposed. But then the writer of Hebrews makes this mind blowing connection. And you'll see what I mean. It says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The implication here at church is that there are a lot of reasons as to why we wouldn't want to go to Jesus. If you look at verse 13, what do we do? Therefore, let us go to him. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Again, the implication here is that there are a lot of reasons as to why we wouldn't want to go outside to where Jesus was at, where he suffered, where he endured. But the writer of Hebrews here is telling us, let's go to him. Let's go to him. And as a result, I get it. It's very hard to be a Christian in our world because it means that you're going to be the outcast. It means that you're going to be the most watched. It means that you're going to be the most talked about because everybody's watching, everybody's hearing. And, and that is a very hard thing to, to withstand. As a result, there's a hesitancy. There's, there's a, a reservation from us to go and, and, and meeting him outside. We're all the gunk where the suffering happened. 
So the question that I'd like to ask you today, church, what is your reservation? What is it that's stopping you from depending on Jesus? What is it that's stopping you from being faithful to Jesus? What is, what is it that's stopping you from, from imitating Jesus? Is it that you fear the world more than God? Is it that, that you feel that you deserve more than what you have because it's not enough? Or is it because you actually just like being like the world? What is the reservation? What is, what is and essentially, what is that idol that is, that is keeping you from truly and fully being committed to God and uh, to Jesus and to following in his footsteps? Jesus came into this world, and when he came into this world, he lived and died for sinners like you and me, for the sins that we've committed. The sins that we committed, he put those sins upon himself, and we, he went outside with those sins, and he died for our sins. And as a result, we, we are forgiven because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And what should our response be? It should be one where we go to him lovingly, because even, even if that means we are the outcast. But the value here is that we, we recognize the value of the sacrifice of Jesus. We have been brought into the kingdom of God. And so as a result, we are his. And so we should go to him. We should go to him. But maybe it's not for any of those reasons. Maybe you're just scared. You're scared to stand out, scared to be different. You're not, you're not brave. You're not courageous to do that. Well, one, I would have to remind you that Jesus has equipped you. He has given you the power of the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead is working in you right now. He even tells the, 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 the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, who are probably look like the most irredeemable people, he says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Every good work. You're equipped. You're not as under-equipped as you think you are. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You're not following Jesus obediently just because, because of your own strength, of your own might and will. No, but rather it is the Spirit who is, who is embodying you and allowing you to do these things. But then the writer Hebrews goes on to verse 14. He says, for, we, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The trials the tribulations, the temptations that you are enduring right now, that we're going to endure in the future, in the next couple of months, in the next couple of days, are not in vain because this is in our home. This is not our last stop. This is in our home. We're in the world right now, but we're not part of the world. We have a home that is waiting for us in heaven with Jesus, and so there is hope. There is hope. So, so let the world say what they want to say about you. Let, let, let the, the world judge you or uh, criticize you unjustly. Because there is a life after this one. We are citizens of the kingdom. We're not citizens of the world. That's the beauty about this. Not only are you equipped, but you have hope. 
Unfortunately, the, the Corinthians had it wrong. There's so much of their dependence, so much of their faithfulness is, is in a materialistic world that will pass away. That will pass away. So Paul has to remind us, Christ in our church is one that is faithful to Jesus, that is, are imitators of Jesus, and they're dependent on Jesus because we're his. And this is in our home. So let's not pretend like this is our home. If you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian or someone who has given their, their life to Christ, first of all, I want to thank you so much for, for being here as we talk about this very weighty issue, but i got to warn you, the same way we're warned as Christians, the world is enticing, and it's meant so that you never get to know Jesus. Every turn and opportunity that the world takes, it will lead you astray from Jesus. And so if you're here today, it is no coincidence. The people that invited you here today, if you saw us on a website, that is Jesus calling out to you. You're here for a reason. And Jesus came into human history to die for the sins of sinners just like you and me. And those who put their faith in him are brought into the kingdom of God to where even after this world passes away, we'll still live with them and reign with them because he is God. And so if you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, I would, I would urge you, just like Paul urged the Corinthians, repent of your sins and know that this world has nothing to offer. You have 70 years max. There is a life after this. Are, are you ready? Are you prepared for that life after that? So if you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, the gospel is an open invitation for you to come and get to know Jesus. And the same Jesus that, that we preach about could, could live inside of you. So long as you repent of your sins and you put your faith in him. Church, we are the kingdom of God. We'll face tribulations, there'll be troubles, we know that. But know that you're equipped with the Holy Spirit. Know that there's a world after this. And know that we're meant to live for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we humbly come before you after receiving the exhortation secondhand. The world is enticing. It distracts us from you, from the gospel, from fellowship, from prayer, from worship. The world is enticing with so many things that our own flesh desires and wants and gravitates to. And so we're, we're, we're at odds here with our flesh and with the world. And it all seems so hopeless, Lord, but we thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit to empower us that it would allow us to depend on you when, when we do reach the highs, when we do reach the lows, when we are ridiculed, when, when, when we are thrown aside because we're outcasts, we're, we're the Bible-thumping Christians. Lord, we would just pray. Our prayer as a church would be that you would take our focus off of the things of the world and turn our focus and attention to you. For you have allowed us to 
be here today, to, to, to hear this reminder that, that is so awfully needed. And so, Lord, we pray that as we go through our week, as we go through our day, that you would keep reminding us of this truth that we're not of this world. We're here in this world for a mission that's to make disciples of Jesus. Jesus.